There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times and the Pointer Institute. On this podcast, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses your stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm a former enterprise editor at The Times. Today's topic, 12 hours in a COVID ICU unit. So let's start by talking about how this story took us 18 months to get. Um, no one wanted to let us in, Lane. Why was that? Why don't they love us? Why, why didn't they want you to go in? Oh, my gosh. I started probably a week after the pandemic shut everything down saying, I need to talk to a nurse. I need to talk to a doctor. I need to get in there and see what's happening. And I mean, I've been here for 21 years, so I know a lot of people and I tried everybody from first year nurses who'd been friends with my kids in school to old senior nurses older than me who'd been there forever, hospitals, doctor's offices, nobody, nobody, nobody would let me in. And a lot of that was because COVID protocol. I mean, maybe most of it even. I think it's always hard to get into hospitals and healthcare settings because of HIPAA, but um, I think because of COVID, everybody was just so overwhelmed and trying to deal with their own disasters that the, having to babysit the press or take care of the press or make sure the press didn't get sick or even see how discombobulated they were, I, I think they just did not want us in there at all. So I spent from March of 2020 through about May of 2021 checking back every few weeks, every few months, sending new emails to new people, hitting up the old people, just saying, please, please let me in. I want to witness this. You know, I'm, I asked, can they, can the doctors or nurses like record themselves? Can we have them, you know, do FaceTime and, and show me what's going on that way if I can't get in? No, 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 no. So it was a like probably the longest I've ever pecked away at trying to get permission to do a story. And it was frustrating, right? Because there were it's occasionally a story would pop up around the country where somebody had been let in, and um, and we still weren't being let in. And I, I, I mean, I think it was a really conservative approach by some of the hospitals. Uh, but then finally, Delta comes along, things start to get worse and worse and worse. So why don't I explain who calls you and why they decided to let you in? Yeah, I was I was almost giving up at that point uh, when Delta hit and started making things real because people had gotten vaccinated, right? There was a vaccine and things seemed like they were going down and the numbers were getting better and not as many people were dying. And then Delta hit and tons more people were dying and tons more people were getting it worse than ever before. So um, a woman who I'd worked with at the Tampa Bay Times for years named Joni James, she was an editor and then an editorial writer at the Times. And then now she's the spokesperson and PR Wrangler person at Baycare Health Center, which has, a, I think, 17 different hospitals. Um, and she called me one afternoon and um, she said, you know, do you still want to do this story? And I was like, hell yeah, I still want to do this story. And she had gone to bat for me and the photographer, John Pendergraft, um, because she'd known us for 10, 12 years. We'd worked together. We'd been colleagues. And she said to her board or whoever had to let us in, her supervisor, administrators, like, I'll vouch for these journalists. You know, I think she showed them some of our work. 
um, she said, I'm not just saying let any reporter in, but like these guys are, are going to do it right and we'll put whatever parameters up we need to make it work. So I think our personal relationship with her really was what finally opened the door there. I don't think that would have happened if they didn't know who we were. Yeah, and that's really, uh, that was a great testament to to the kind of um, track record you have, but also, yeah, that she could trust you and that um, we had a little bit of that same experience with the Police Academy series and and somebody that Lane had worked with and John, John Pendergraf had worked with and they basically felt comfortable. You know, they didn't trust everybody, but they trusted that you guys were going to we're going to do a good, a great story. And, and obviously they were trying to get out the word too, that everybody was overwhelmed, that this, take this seriously, that a lot of the people who were dying were unvaccinated. You know, they, they obviously had an agenda and they wanted to get that across, but they also wanted to do it in a way that, um, I don't know, I guess wouldn't backfire on them somehow, you know? And, uh, but anyway, so they, we, we had to agree to some ground rules, right? So your ground rules were, yeah, and, and the ground rules were really stifling. I mean, if the hardest part of the story was getting permission to do it, the second hardest was working around the rules that they put in front of us. So um, they, they picked the nurse for me. They picked a nursing supervisor, so I didn't get a chance to say this guy or that guy, whatever. She was wonderful, though, but they wouldn't give me her personal contact information. So I didn't have her email. I didn't have her cell phone. I myself would have like probably called her up at 8 o'clock that night and sat there while we had a glass of wine and talked you know, very casually, but for a long time and at least an hour, you know, I would want to have at least reported for an hour or two beforehand, but they didn't give me that. They gave me about 20 minutes um, on a break and there were like four other people zoomed in on this call. So it wasn't in person um, where everybody was monitoring what I said and how quickly and what she said and how much time we had to really talk to her and how personal I was allowed to get with her. Um, so that was really hard. You know, that was like, I felt like they were just such a tight squeeze from the beginning. Um, and then we were given 12 hours and um, we weren't even given 12 hours. They were told we were given 12 hours and they kicked us out after about six and said, they need a break. They need a break, leave and come back in two hours. So we missed this critical part in the middle of the day where they almost wa- watched this woman die. And as soon as we got back to the hospital, the administrator was like, get up in the elevator and the woman in whatever is about to die. So, you know, that was hard. Um, I think one of the hardest parts was they gave us each a handler, John and I, who was like another PR person who was supposed to babysit us. Um, I don't think I've ever had that done except for when I did military stories, you know. I, I don't think I've ever had someone be like, here's your handler, you know. And so we had to go through them to get questions to anybody else. And they had to keep us from talking to the other doctors or nurses or the patients or the patient's families and basically, like, prohibit us from doing any kind of reporting other than observing, you know, and, and, and overhearing. And so that was really restrictive um, and confusing. <laughs> you know, when we'd ask, we'd ask the handlers, like, what's going on? What are they doing? What does that code mean? What is that? And they'd go, I don't know. I'm a PR person. You know, they weren't like, they didn't have any medical knowledge. So that was hard. Um, you did ask them if we could key on someone in particular, because... We thought that that would be a way to get a little depth out of it with, and it was a very quick turnaround. We should also say like there was a, oh, we'll let you do it. And, and everything's swirling and the, the, all the record deaths and everything's happening. And so we were trying to get you guys in there quickly. Um, So, but as you said, normally you'd get a chance to kind of vet some candidates, like who might be the nurse or who might be the person you want to focus on. And we didn't get that. And and yeah, it was very unusual, those kind of ground rules where you they didn't trust, I guess, you to have a conversation with her 
by yourselves, um, which is weird because she seemed very open, right? The minute you started talking to her, she wasn't, it, it wasn't, she wasn't hung up on the whole, I'm, I'm the subject of a story kind of thing, you know? No, I think it was also they didn't want us to get in her way. You know, it was so busy and so many people were desperately dying and they were so understaffed. I think they were just like, you know, don't make things worse, <laughs> you know, stay back. And, and uh, she was very generous at the end, I should say, that she um, gave us an hour after her shift. I mean, in, in normal, whatever that means, times, I would have gone home with her. You know, I would have wanted to ride home with her in her car and be there when her dogs greeted her and her husband made her a drink and she took off her shoes and, you know, whatever it was. But I, she was leaving at, at the end of her shift to go straight home and we weren't allowed to go with her. And so I said, can I have a, a few minutes? And she was like, oh, okay, sure. And so we went to this little makeshift office and she put down her purse and I finally got to like have a little, you know, conversation with her without all the other noise and handlers around. So I think that's kind of what helped salvage the story. I know we've talked about this kind of thing in other podcasts, but I just want to, for this particular, like if this had been a different kind of situation, as you said, and you knew that you were going to focus on this woman, what would that interview have looked like beforehand? You you would have been diving into her background, just her career as a nurse, what brought, you know, like everything, right? And and then also, of course, what the last 18 months had been like and, um, you know, why she was still a nurse, all these kind of things, and maybe even her home dynamic, you know, things about the hospital, um, right? You would have been trying to get all of that and maybe even talking to other people about her. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. She she had two teenage kids and um, near the very, very end of the day, she said something like, I had to bribe my son $100 to get it vaccinated, you know? And I was like, oh, that would have been such an interesting thing to explore, you know, her, as a mom now, all of a sudden, not just a nurse, what she's dealing with, you know, but I, I didn't get to go very deeply into any of that. Unfortunately, it was much more like, here's your frame, go, you know. Go. So, so the plan for the day, you knew the plan was for a 12 hour shift. Um, you didn't necessarily know you'd be spending a little extra time with her at the end, but you and John get there bright and early, right? And walk through sort of the whole procedure that you had to do. So we wanted to be there before she was, so we could kind of watch her walk in um, to the lobby, but she got there a little early, so we kind of walked in at the same time. Um, and it's, we rode up the elevator with her, um, and then there's this little tiny office like the size of a you know a janitor's closet type thing where she put her purse and had her, her smoothie, and she hadn't even put her purse down before they came to get her because a woman was coding. So, you know, there wasn't any time to get the lay of the land to talk about, like, you know, staffing or how many rooms or what condition of people. And it was like, Dan, get over here because this woman's going to code. So our day started with an almost death, um, which was unsettling to say the least. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, but, but we also didn't really know what was going on. We didn't know who was who. We didn't know what was happening. Um, the one really thing that we left out and on this ward, this COVID ward, the ICU that had been turned into a COVID ward was that all the walls in the um, rooms were glass. They had this like weird air filtration system. And so they'd taken out the real walls and put glass walls in, which was 
a godsend because if we hadn't been able to go in the rooms, we couldn't have reported that story, you know. So we were able to watch through the window what was happening. John had a timestamp on his camera, and I have time, keeping timestamps in my notebook when I turn the pages so he knew what time it was and we put what room it was. <laughs> we weren't allowed to identify the patients. At first they said not even by their gender, and I was like, come on, you got to give me a woman from Tampa, you know, something like that. So we argued over that. Um, but I took pretty good notes in the margins about what I needed to come back to and go, what was happening in room 12 at 11.20 a.m.? You know, what does code G3B mean? What does the blue light mean when it flashed? Like, I'm not familiar with hospital culture enough to know what was happening and everything was happening so fast that I had to keep writing things in my margin to go back to and follow up on later with Jen and go, what was that, you know? Yeah, you've talked a little bit about the hospital jargon and medical jargon and things like that. So you you have PR people who are worthless. It's not really a great time to sit and stop Jen or anybody else who's trying to save lives. Like, what do you mean by, you know, what does that machine do and all that? So um, was was that, that was just a process of you writing notes to yourself and saying, I got to get somebody later to help me explain this. And I know in some cases you were like, forget the medicals. <laughs> like, we don't need to go there because people might not understand it anyway, right? Exactly. I, I mean, I wouldn't know enough that I could say layman-wise what was happening. You know what I mean? But it, it was also very restrictive because, you know, I like to tell the emotional side of these stories a lot. And the nurses knew, you know, this woman in 3B has a, a four-year-old daughter who sends her Hello Kitty pictures. And this man over here, his granddaughter's about to get married. But then they wouldn't let us use any of that. So even things I knew or was able to find out a lot of by overhearing, you know, or observing, we had to edit out. And, and uh, I know, you know, we went through this like really yucky, nauseous process of vetting the story at the end where they wanted to pull out even more stuff. So, I, I mean, I was I was happy, I guess, to get the story. I feel like it could have been a lot more if it hadn't been so restrictive, but you got to get what you can sometimes, right? Yeah, well, I, I think you did an amazing job. For publication, even Lane and I are going back through meeting with the PR people who are, you know, having apoplexy uh, about the story still and all very nervous. And, and then Lane did this great thing where she just, she created the patients by just putting them in their room. So the person in this room and the person in that room to give a sense of what's happening. And, and like she said, even fighting over whether we could say the woman in this room or the man in that room. Um, we didn't even say what day we had been there so that nobody could say, okay, on, oh, that was my dad on that particular day. So they were panicking, I think, a little too much. And it was ironic in a way because I think you and I talked about this, that by, by them like handcuffing you over the patients, I mean, you had to key on Jen. She, you had to key really on Jen's experience. And you know, the, as this sort of observer of these people who are coming in and, and having all these medical crises. And um, it, it it let you go deeper on Jen. I mean, if, if we had had to uh, incorporate the backstory on, like, particularly the woman who dies in the story, it's very dramatic. Um, I don't know, maybe it would have been, maybe it wouldn't have been as successful a story in a way because you really were trying to convey the chaos in the hospital and what they were dealing with. I, I do wish I'd have been able to talk to her husband or her kids too. You know, I feel like the, all, the whole piece of like coming home and, and bringing this home um, didn't get to be told there very much. You and John, the photographer, were, you said, really quiet on the way home, which is not usually how you experience a story. Um, why, 
Was it the emotional wallop of watching people die? Was it just the, being caught up in the whole, uh, everything that we were living through at that moment? I think it was all of the above, you know? I mean, John and I are both really, really chatty. And I love driving to and from stories with John to, to talk about the before and then like re regurgitate the after and what the hell was that that happened? Or did, can you believe that or whatever? And um, on this ride there, we were trying to strategize how we were going to work around all the parameters um, and kind of telling each other, like, we're, we're going to split up a little bit so that we're not in the same place at the same time. So we can cover a little bit more ground and see what's happening in other parts of that wing. Um, but on the way home, it was like John drove and he didn't turn on the radio and he didn't say a word. And I mean, we were both pretty exhausted. It had been a 12 hour reporting shift, but also another couple hours on either end with no kind of downtime or food or whatever, but on your feet and kind of confused and panicking. Like, did I get this right? Like, what did I miss? It was kind of a, a adrenaline panic surge the whole time of what we were, we were getting this right. Um, but also it was, we kind of didn't know what to say. I think, you know, it was so much that we'd witnessed that I think each of us wanted to sort of be, in our own heads and hearts and process it for a little bit instead of figuring out how to share what it was with each other yet. Like I'd never watched four people die in a day before. I've seen someone die before, but not four people at once. And not when everybody around them is also on the brink of death. You know, it almost felt like you were in a battlefield of some type where everybody around you might die at any moment, you know, and throughout the hospital, you kept seeing the blue lights flashing and the sirens and you knew somewhere, even on another floor, somebody had died um, and then the terror too, like you could feel the nurses scared of bringing it home to their kids. You could, one of the nurses had like a toddler and was terrified she was going to get the baby sick. You know, another nurse was battling with her husband who didn't want her to go to work because he didn't want her to put them in at risk. And a bunch of nurses had called in sick, you know, and so then these nurses were pissed at the ones who called in sick who couldn't handle it because here they were. And so there was just so much emotion, you know, on so many levels. I think it was really hard to figure out like, a, how do I breathe, you know, B, how do I not feel so freaking lucky that that's not my job, not my dad, not my grandmom in there, you know, and also not be a little scared that, shoot, I just spent 12 hours around dying people who were breathing, you know, inches away from me. But I mean, that wasn't a big factor. I was more worried about the story than I was about me getting sick, to tell you the truth. And and also just grateful to be back in the world reporting in real time, the way we like to report, you know, it was so delicious in a weird way to be able to do real journalism again, um, even with all the restrictions. I, I think that we were battling conflicting feelings. Um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about your safety because you didn't, you didn't express to me a lot of concerns, and I'm sure other editors dealt with this during the pandemic. You know, we certainly had reporters who were very leery of being out and about. Um, and you, you feel like you want to respect that because, you know, it's like you are sending people into potentially dangerous territory. Um, but, but yeah, I thought I wanted you to talk a little bit about that balance. And did you get any pressure from anybody, from your parents, from, from Dan, from the kids about like, mom, you know, take care of yourself. Don't go into, what are you talking about going into a COVID ICU unit? What are you insane? <laughs> Tucker was, my youngest son was definitely saying that. What are you doing, mom? Why are you doing this? You know, he he was um incredulous that I wouldn't just want to like do it over Zoom or something like that. Like he knew it was a good story, but 
he he was like the one who probably was the biggest naysayer, you know. I mean, I had both my vaccines. I I felt okay about that, you know. I I um we they gave us PPE. We had the N95 masks and you know head whatever and booties on our feet and it was hot as bejesus. <laughs> but we kept distance, you know. We we stayed back from six feet from most of the people. So I mean. We did what we could. I, I, I really honestly was more worried about being able to do the story justice than I was about getting sick. Because I felt like it was so important, you know, to share that story. And I was so restricted and I'd been trying for so long. I felt like I don't want to let the nurses down. I don't want the readers down. I want, I want to produce this. But it was also what we had two days to write it. It was like a super quick turnaround, which had to flex muscles I hadn't done in a while under the terror of like, is this going to suck, you know? It was such a weird experience because, you know, most journalists are not foreign correspondents or war reporters, and they're maybe not used to dealing with tricky or tricky situations where they're putting themselves in jeopardy. And, um, you know, you're, you're not usually in jeopardy at a city council meeting. But I know that you, from those, those couple years of feeling so frustrated, you were by not being able to be reporting in the way you typically report and the in the in the way that gives you the power to bring this home because I thought you did an amazing job of observing what was going on and picking up some of the the just the little nuances of things that were happening and the way that Jen was reacting to things and the way that other people were reacting to things and and you're like you said that you guys got to watch through glass which was amazing because otherwise what all these people would have been trooping into somebody's room and I, I don't even know if they would have let you in so the the way that the, the ward was shaped actually helped you tell it too absolutely I think that's why they picked of their 17 hospitals I think that's why they wanted to put us there because that one did have that access um but another thing I want to say about Jen too it's like I felt like this about my subjects for so long like if she's out there doing this I should be willing to go out there and do this. You know what I mean? Like whether it's a soldier fighting a war, which I have never done, or an old man catching a, a tuna fish at the sea in these horrible waves, or someone working in a COVID ward, or a homeless shelter, or a jail, or, you know, I, I feel like there's all these people out there who are doing these jobs um, that most of us wouldn't be willing to do. And part of my part of my job as a journalist, right, is to show these people working in these situations so that maybe our readers will be more appreciative or at least better understand what they're going through. So talk about some of the reaction you got, which really, I think, um, illustrated how powerful and effective the story was because um, you got some people to, to, to get vaccinated. <laughs> they actually read it and thought, holy shit. Yeah, that was the best reaction of all. I got hundreds of emails from that story, like even weeks after, because it kept getting picked up by other news sources. So then I started hearing from people in Texas. Then I started hearing from people in Pennsylvania. And um, the overwhelming reaction was thank you. Like, thank you for sharing the story. Thank you for shining a light in this place. Thank you for showing us it's not fake news, that these they're really dealing with dying people. Um, thank you for providing a voice for these healthcare workers who started out as heroes and now they're just more beleaguered than ever. And I mean, they're part of the frustration, I think, was that they were watching people die who shouldn't have been dying by that point because they could have gotten the vaccine. At the beginning, everybody was so helpless. But by my story, you could just, it, the, the frustration of the healthcare workers was palpable. You know what I mean? Um, so I got a lot of healthcare workers thanking me for that. Um, I probably had, I think, four or five people who wrote me and said either they or their spouse had gone to get the vaccine after they read my story. So that felt like, you know, a giant victory. Um, and 
Oh, the healthcare workers, actually, I don't know if I, I showed you this, Maria. They made this giant poster board for me and John where they all wrote on Sharpie and thanked us and brought it to us. I've never had anybody give me like a giant poster thank you before, but there must be 40 names on there from the people who were in that ward that day that were like, thanks for telling our story. Thanks for getting the word out. Thanks for being there. You know, it was so, I started to cry when they gave it to me. It was so overwhelming. And, and I hope, maybe I'm having like magical thinking here or whatever that word is. Like, I hope that because they liked the story, that they'll let us in next time. You know what I mean? Maybe it'll be easier next time when we need to get in for them to trust yeah. us and go, all right, this was worth it, you know? I, and I was going to say, you were consciously thinking about that too. I remember that coming up, like we, we have to do justice to this story. So they understand that it's worth it to let people in. So we'll, we'll make sure to link to the story so everybody can read it. It's an amazing story um, done under a tight deadline, which for those of you who want to do narrative work and don't have a lot of time, this is a good story to read. Um, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can find other episodes on pointer.org forward slash right lane. And please join our Facebook group. This podcast was produced by Jesse Lauk. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.